the Film Society of Lincoln Center, you're listening to The Close-Up. This week we're sharing the Q&A from our special 20th anniversary screening of The Last Days of Disco. Directed by Whit Stillman, this late 90s American indie classic endures for how it captures the peculiar ache of quarter-life growing pains and the exhilarating melancholy that comes with the end of an era. After our sold-out screening, Stillman joined cast members Chloe Sevigny, Michael Weatherly, and Mackenzie Aston to discuss the film's legacy. Let's go to that now. I think maybe we'll ask uh, a few questions to start the discussion, and then we can open it up to the audience. We should also mention that we have some people in the audience who made the film. We have um, producer Cecilia Roquet, uh, editors Andy Hayfitz and Jay Perez, and composer Mark Suazo. Thank you. Um, so maybe we can start... Maybe I have a question for you before we open up to what cast we have here tonight. Um, as I mentioned in the introduction, a lot of your film deal with, you know, um, it's not really coming of age, it's more like moving into adulthood, uh, and there's some, a lot of sarcasm, irony, it's very well written, but you also have this nostalgia and of youth coming up. But setting it up in this specific time period, uh, can you maybe start with uh, the original inspiration for the very specific um, last days of discos, where discos is still great, but it's not the prime era of Saturday Night Fever? Well, um, the idea for the film came out of the shoot for our film Barcelona, where we had a really troubled shoot, and we were shooting at night a lot, and we found out that the two days when we shot in discos were perfect for shooting because you could shoot during the day, there are no windows, and the crew really enjoyed it. They really liked the music. And so the idea was to have, um, so in that we had Mira Servino and Tushka Bergen dancing in discos, that, that beautiful women dancing in discos would be really cinematic. Because when you're doing romantic comedies, essentially, romantic comedy dramas, to have it cinematic, to have it look like something, what could it be? And uh, this was an important sort of period in our life in New York. It was when things were really different and really exciting. So it seemed like good material for, for a movie. And you've met Chloe at what point? Uh, you, you knew of her from kids? Because it's pretty well, um, soon the editor, after. Uh, the editor um, who, did, who worked on Metropolitan and Barcelona also worked on kids. Mm-hmm. And he, you know, urged me, urged me to see the cast of kids, particularly Chloe. And I think she was shooting something else for Cast Rock, maybe out of town, Palmetto. Um, and so she finally came in. And, and we've been under a lot of pressure to have big name stars in the movie because the budget was climbing. And we had actually decided to offer the part to a big star. And Chloe came in on a... Went- that was on a, the conversation was on Monday. Chloe came in on a Wednesday and was fantastic. And so I called up Castle Rock and said, I just saw someone fantastic. Chloe Sevigny said, oh, we love her from Palmetto. We've met her, blah, blah. So but I said, but we've already offered the part to someone else. And he said, well, actually, the manager hasn't called back. So when they call back, we'll just say, well, never mind. You know, they, they didn't know what the call was about. 
and so we were able to um, offer the part to, to Chloe. Officially offer the part. Yes. <laughs> okay, that sounds good. What about uh, Michael and Mackenzie? At what time, at what point did they come into the, the, the film? I think pretty early. Mm -hmm. I think they were, you know, early choices. Um, I think I kept trying to get Mac play different roles. So I urged him to play uh, Josh, and he refused. <laughs> I, I kept wanting him to sort of, there, there was a sort of thing of moving the male actors around in different parts. And, um, and I, I think there was sort of the idea of, which you didn't like, of playing the Josh part. That's wild. Because in watching it, you know, 20, uh, some odd, uh, 20 years, well, 21 years later, I, that's the part I wish I could have played. <laughs> what a hero he you is. You turned it down. He fills out that Harlequin costume a lot better, too. <laughs> so I think you made the right choice. Uh, I just remember when I got to audition, and I was so excited uh, to audition for it. First of all, the script um, caused great consternation on the flight from Los Angeles to New York because I kept laughing out loud uh, and disturbing pretty much everyone in coach. Uh, and, and I kept telling everyone, this is the funniest thing I've ever read in my life. And uh, so it was highly unpopular. Um, this is when you could smoke on planes too. So it was a different time. But uh, by the time I landed, I, I actually had this beard and uh, I went in and auditioned for Wit, and, he, and um, I was very excited to meet him because I loved his work and everything, and I could see that he kept sort of staring at my chin. And uh, so when I finally met Wit on, uh, on the first day of shooting, I was clean shaven and I had come up with this hairdo for Hap. And uh, I walked up and he looked at me and he said, oh, that's what you look like. <laughs> and so that was uh, how Hap, and I, and I always, for whatever reason, remember, uh, I remember so much. God, it's so funny watching it, because I remember so many. I mean, I'm barely in the in the film, but I remember so many of those days because I had an 18-month-old son at the time, and I was recently divorced, so he was actually with me during a great deal of the shooting. And sometimes the light would go red, and we were shooting, and people would keep talking, and he would go shh, <laughs> and then I'd leave him on the grip truck uh, for 10 or 15 minutes with, uh, you know, in the in the very responsible hands of some, of some uh, union members. My only direction of Michael was to get him to shave his uh, beard and it didn't work, it snaps back, so. You, you ask him for tonight too? No, no. This is a callback. No. And, and Corey, do you have any specific uh, memories that you would like to share from the beginning of working on the film, or? Gosh, I mean, there's so many. <laughs> more specific, but I do remember auditioning. I think that might have been the last film I ever got off an audition. Was, uh, and I think I, I was like building up my whole Connecticut side to try and get the part, because I thought that would really please Wit. <laughs> it did. <laughs> Had you seen his previous work? Um, of course, yes. Okay. I was a big fan of Metropolitan, um, especially, and um, just thought his voice was like, and, and like no one else working in, in cinema at the time, and, and I really wanted to be a part of, you know, one of his movies. And one of the sort of great things is after I met uh, Chloe in the audition, I could immediately see other of her films, so I could see Kids and see Trees Lounge. And um, I think people think that, you know, Kids is so extreme and interesting in a completely different way than our films, but it was just so clear 
how you know great Chloe would be um, in our film from the audition plus those two um, parts she had done. So, like sometimes people think that we had something to do with finding the actors when most of the actors we got in our films were already like rocket ships going up. Maybe it didn't feel that, like that, but I think in the industry it was. When you, you do keep a relationship with, uh, with your actors, you, you're not very prolific, but you can see from all your films, like you worked with Chris a lot, you worked with Chloe again, you worked with Kate also uh, recently, even though she's not here tonight, so you do like to keep a relationship with people you think work really well with you. And that, I, I think, think it's, it's the important. greatest thing to be able to work with the same people who you like working with. And I wish I'd been able to work with Michael and, um, and Mackenzie. But if the TV show finally happens, maybe stars of television will be able to. Well, will Michael, it. Michael's going to have to shave. <laughs> and Mackenzie's going to have to take whatever role comes to him and not complain. <laughs> no, I think, complain. I think Michael can be as he is now. I think that'd be fine. <laughs> Hemingway, <laughs> it's coming. <laughs> Keep drinking and growing more. I mean, yeah, the shirt with the little thing and the Hemingway too. <laughs> Hi there. Um, as I was watching the film, I just couldn't stop dancing. And I was wondering what made you pick those particular disco songs for the soundtrack. Thank you. Well, they seemed, um, I mean, they were great songs, and uh, you know we loved them. And I think some of them we picked for shooting, so we sort of knew what we'd have. Uh, the only song with someone clearing all the songs, and he did a really, you know, deal so we could get these great songs. The only song we couldn't get was um, "Upside Down" by Diana Ross. We got "I'm Coming Out," and uh, we'd used that in the temporary track of of two films, of this film and also of Barcelona, so we were sort of sick of it by then, so they said, fine to lose that. And, uh, but I think we played, like, on set, we played Spinners, actually. I think you like Spinners. Uh, yeah, I still do. Yeah, spinners and so it's really good, sort of having, like, as the crew was doing the lighting and waiting, we'd, in the sound system, in the club, we'd be playing Spinners and things like that, so we'd have a variation of, of the disco music. So, uh, did you blow most of the budget on ride clearance for the music, or...? It's really interesting how that's changed, because the whole music business has sort of collapsed as far as, you know, CD sales, unit sales of, of films. So, in those days, um, you could clear things more cheaply because you were sort of showing the films that people would later buy. Now, um, film and TV uses is like the big money place for music, so we couldn't make this film now with the soundtrack because everyone would want too much money for each song, I think. Even the spinners. <laughs> we'll do the spinners film someday. It's coming up. Is <laughs> uh, someone there with the glasses? Uh, microphone is coming to you. Hi, uh, thank you. Um, what was the process of um, novelizing uh, The Last Days, of Last Days of Disco when you turned it, into, it turned it into a book around 2014, I think? Well, it feels odd to be here with Mackenzie Aston because the conceit of the novel is that it's written by Jimmy Steinway, the dancing ad man. Um, and so uh, he's telling the, the true story of what happened behind uh, the film. And then uh, 15 years later or whatever, they come to see the rough cut of the film and to comment 
we, we actually screened the film a lot in Rough Cut at the old screen room in Planet Hollywood, which is a really fun place to, to show something because you could bring drinks and food in. And then the, the, the real characters from the movie go to Petrosian and talk about things and the story sort of advances. So um, for us, Strauss didn't want it to come out at the same time as the movie and it couldn't have come out and they gave me two years to write it. And uh, it's really interesting. Um, experience but probably a terrible thing to do I mean as far as you know getting yourself out of the film business it led to sort of 10 more years of not making a film so I'm not sure if it's recommended <laughs> if I could just sort of add uh, on, on top of that I, I think for the actors one of the great joys as Michael mentioned was to be able to read the screenplay and so it's lovely in my opinion that there was an opportunity for the, the general public, if you will, to at least experience some of, some of your work on the page. You know, <clears throat> I think one of the things that we, that we love about this movie and that people love about Metropolitan and Barcelona and the, the others are how good the words are, you know? And whether the performance um, can, I mean, it can add to that, obviously, but it's the, it's the words themselves that are just magic. And so it's, I'm glad you brought up the, the book that was, of course, written by Jimmy Steinway. Well, <laughs> because it was, I, I'm, I'm grateful that the audience has had an opportunity to read your, read your words. It, you know, it's well as seen in your, your film. There's something that came out of the film, like, didn't you become um, friendly with your roommate, Holly? Didn't that become... Asked me about last days of disco. I said, you know, on a personal level, Tara Subkoff, who played Tara, um, who played Holly, became one of the closest people in my life. You know, since then, and I've had, I mean, countless, whatever experiences, meeting people, doing projects together. I mean, it goes on and on and on. So. Did you have a room together? Uh, I mean, I kind of slept on our couch for a while whenever I go to LA, but I wouldn't, yeah, not necessarily rooming, but. No mooching. <laughs> Michael, do you think this movie led to your being cast in the investigative role that you uh, broke this big club? It led to investigations? It is the first time that I flashed a badge. Uh, and, I mean, I can only tell you that um, 13 years of playing a federal agent on television uh, it is is somewhat more limiting uh, creatively. You didn't get to play an ad man no, too? I didn't get to dance with Kate Beckinsale and Chloe in, in the, in, uh, in, on NCIS. But I did, uh, I did get to yell, yell a lot. I Michael yelled. has the, Michael uh, created the only ad lib in the final cut of one of our films, which is when he's going in for the raid and he's going by van, he flashes his bat and says, we're on the list. <laughs> Good Which one. was just private revenge for every time I've never been able to get into a club. Uh, at 50 years old now, I look back and, you know, it, it, it is, I, I don't go to clubs anymore, I have no idea, but, you know, <laughs> that guy standing there, the arbiter of how your night will go. Uh, boy, it, it's, uh, it, it's one of the more hilarious aspects of the movie, because, and I don't know if it's, I don't know how it works now. I mean, I don't know if you have like a Tinder swipe to the right, you know. No, I'm on the, I have the barcode on my phone. I don't know how people do things. Well, the person you're talking about, the, the door Nazi, Van, is now a really successful director, Burstiers. Chloe's directed films. Chris Eigenman's in directing his second film now. Matt Ross did Captain Fantastic. 
and another film. So it's sort of Tara a, directed a few films. Tara also it's sort of a machine of directors and Michael Weatherly has directed a beautiful documentary called Jamaica Man that was shown at Telluride that's really great and sort of inspires me for the Jamaican film I want to make to see this beautiful version of it. Uh, and so the, the, the film has been sort of a Petri dish of directors, so that's, that's kind of cool. I was, I was watching a documentary recently about Patty Chayefsky and it talked about these standalone monologues and elevated and challenging speech and use of thesaurus and dictionary terms which people don't ordinarily speak in and I thought, that sounds familiar to me. I've seen movies like that. If Chayefsky wasn't an influence on you, who was an influence on the way you write screenplays? I didn't use a thesaurus for this film. Okay. <laughs> you authored the thesaurus. I, I knew, knew most of the words. Uh, I don't know. It's really hard to know like where things... I mean, I think that um, someone said that the fact that J.D. Salinger would not, after the film Hasty Heart, a film version of, um, I think it was called that, of Uncle Wiggly in Connecticut, he refused to allow people to adapt his stories or, or, or work for films. And so I think there are a lot of frustrated filmmakers who cannot do J.D. Salinger, so they'd like to try to enter the world of J.D. Salinger, like today, in their own milieu, and what would that be like? And so I think there's certain novelists you think of, so Metropolitan would be very Fitzgerald influenced. And so um, I think it's really easy, it's kind of more interesting to be inspired by novelists you love when you're making films than just some other great filmmakers who you would really admire, but it's not directly relevant. So uh, I remember um, when the Cast Rock people saw the cut with the argument about J.D. Salinger stories, in the dark, in the railroad flat, when Chloe proposes something Salinger-esque and departmental Dan says he was you know, badly destroyed by Mary McCarthy and other people in his own day, um, the people at Cast Rock said, that'll cut three million off the gross. <laughs> but they're being really optimistic because our, our full gross was three million. So. <laughs> I guess it would have been six million if it hadn't been for that scene. Well, two things. First, quickly, Chloe, I love the way you said, I love Uncle Scrooge. <laughs> so thank you for that. And second, I, I, I really love the whole debate about Lady and the Tramp. And, and I mean, that, that to me was just fantastic. And uh, uh, just wondering, like, uh, for like Wit, what was sort of, how did that come about? I mean, did, did, did it just happen? I mean, what was the inspiration for the Lady and the Tramp debate? Well, it's all true. <laughs> Girls have been programmed to, to like tramps, and it's Disney's fault. Uh, the, the thing is, when you're doing a film um, where there's going to be dialogue, people are talking about things, you want things that people throughout the country and throughout parts of the world are going to know about. And one thing people know about are Disney films, sort of the classic Disney films. And it's not an accident at the time I was writing this, I had two small daughters watching a lot of these films. So I was learning a lot about these films. And uh, my daughter, who's here tonight, is in the film 
carrying boxes uh, into the uh, into the apartment. So, and also goes back to sort of our childhood, the fact that I think we were affected, you know, by these things, and uh, it allowed. It was a scene which allowed each character to sort of come into their own. And one thing we discovered in sort of the first public screening we had of Metropolitan is that so much of the humor and interest in the film is the reaction, the facial reactions of the actors reacting to things. The jokes normally are not the lines, it's really the, the reaction of the actor to the line. And so in that scene, you got to see each character, you know, um, Chloe and Mac and, um, and, and their response to, to the material. And I also wanted to just add, while, while I was watching uh, tonight, because I have a six-year-old daughter, I leaned over to my wife and I said, am I crazy or does Kate Beckinsale seem exactly like our six-year-old daughter <laughs> in this film? Like, the, the level of difficulty <laughs> that she presents, you're just like, wow. Because sometimes there's just no pleasing my beautiful Olivia, who I love to death, but, oh, but every once in a while. So I'm wondering if you had a little bit of... Uh, your child is present. We should probably we'll discuss this later. But perhaps that's good. Perhaps that kind of personality, that kind of character, is like the six-year-old child, big and sexy and attractive and all that. But you know, with that personality of of an egotist. Yeah. No filter. <laughs> and good luck to you. Yeah, I know. Right. Twenty years from now, I'll tell you. At the 40th anniversary. There it is. <laughs> So I just wanted to ask one of the remarkable things about the screenplay I always thought is that the jokes land even if I don't know why they're funny. <laughs> the, the, the whole subtext against the advertising, having that, not wanting that element in the club, that line that Bernie gives, I've always found that really funny and there are other lines that touch upon that. Um, can you say more about what you were getting at with that? And, you don't have to be gentle. There's no. Not, not well, I don't know. I think there are a lot of easy targets. So there's a lot of sort of contempt for all kinds of things that isn't very, very well justified. So if you sort of try to flip it, you can sort of get some mileage from that. Um, I mean, I guess I like the yuppie, the yuppie scene, the defense of yuppies. Uh, go, as the whole thing about the sequence of going to Rex's which is the Old Town Bar, which is one of the great places that still uh, exists in New York. And uh, I don't know, they're, 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 I, I just think that people have so much contempt for different things, and you know, why should you have that contempt? So you can do something humorously with that. Are any of you yuppies, would you say? <laughs> I'm 50, so there's that's young is out. So maybe I'm uppy? I don't know. I don't have a job. A duppy? I don't have a job either. Uh, someone there? Mr. Stillman, I'm curious about your personal experience with disco and perhaps Studio 54 itself. Did you spend much time there? Can you talk about it? Oh, that's a, thank you for that. I, that's a question I wanted to ask. How many people here were ever in Studio 54 under the sort of Steve Rubell period, the sort of key period? Oh, that's, oh, okay, okay. 
How many people here never saw this film before? Cool, cool. Hope it wasn't too shocking for you. <laughs> so, um, what was your question? <laughs> did, you, did you spend time there? I did, but not that much. Uh, I had a, uh, a friend who, from, from college who um, had a sort of no-show job and he ended up getting into the entourage of Prince Egon von Furstenberg. Diana von Furstenberg's uh, original husband. And um, I was working in a news service where we got out at 2 a.m. So he said, well, come to Studio 54. Come to Studio. It's called Studio, not like the, the film called 54. You know, and I'll get you in. So that was one of the times I went. I went, you know, various times. Had big, big, you know, experiences there. Uh, first date with my future wife was there. And uh, so um, the thing is, I think that these people are talking about it all the time, aren't necessarily going that much. It was like a big thing, you knew it was there, you'd go like five times, but it loomed sort of large in your life and your, your concept of what was happening in New York. And then you try other places when they came along and they weren't as good, but you know, you were going out and trying that. But I think that um, these guys got the sort of continuation of that because one of the false things in the film is that the sort of nightclub era didn't end. So yes, disco music ended and that kind of club ended, but that sort of nightlife culture continued. I'm not sure what it is now, but for a long time, there's a lot of sort of nightlife clubs and all that. Uh, I'll, I'll say this: Gr Growing up, I was born in, in '73, so growing up in uh, in in the you know middle and late '80s, you, you heard a great deal about this incredible experience that the '70s was, and it was, you know, um, perhaps glorified in in a number of ways or uh, lionized in, in a manner that maybe it, it, it might not, not have deserved, but it, it was this romanticized period that we heard about that, like, oh, the '70s was so '70s, and I I, I was able. You know, so, so to get the job was super exciting because uh, we were going to sort of recreate this uh, this experience. And as an individual, um, I stole a moment while we were shooting. I wasn't in the scene. There was this amazing theater in Jersey City uh, where the nightclub was was filmed, and it, I think it was on the way to being torn down. And and we were able to get in there before it was, and uh, it was just a magnificent, magnificent space. And as Whit said, there, there, there was music playing for some of the dance scenes so that people could you know, move to something. And I got all the way up to the top of the building and looked down over this, uh, this nightclub floor and you know, squinted, if, if you will, uh, metaphysically. And all of a sudden, with the music playing, like I was in the 70s, and it was, or the very early 80s. And it was, I don't know, f for someone who hears about it as a kid so much being this incredible thing, to be able to sor sort of be there, or pretend to be there, felt pretty good for a 22-year-old. You know, uh, I was that, hammered, too, so that helped. That was the, the Lowe's, um, I'm not sure if it's called the Lowe's Jersey City, the Lowe's um, Journal Square. Um, it's a huge theater that's still there. It's, it was being restored, and um, it's been showing movies. I think they're trying to raise money for that, but they have a film program there. And there's another um, film, a John Turturro film, that was trying to shoot at the same time, and we did a compromise where they paid for the red carpet and we paid for everything else, and we, we shared the space. And the outside, the exterior was Van Damme Street, so 
our club was downtown. Um, my question is about a specific, specific scene, um, the one in, w in which Alice and Josh's character are having a conversation in front of the main. Um, and it reminded me of a scene in Barcelona in which there's an argument about the sinking of the main. And I wanted to know if there's something about that specific historical event that made you want to bring it up again in this movie? Well, yes. Um, <laughs> I think it's a really interesting uh, thing. There's sort of the myth that there's some nefarious American plot to provoke the war, which, which isn't true. Um, it's just a, it's a really beautiful, incredible, sad, lovely monument. It's just a remarkable thing. And um, I was holed up near there trying to finish the script. I mean, I look at the film now and I think, oh my gosh, I needed four more drafts of this thing. Um, Kastorok was very worried about the Miramax film called 54 and wanted us to go early. So everything was sort of under pressure. And I was holed up right near there. And so um, I got to see it a lot uh, as I was trying to finish the script. And I just think it's a I mean, this is the, the U USS Main Monument. It's right in Columbus Circle on the inside of the park, and I really recommend people look at it. It's, it's extraordinary. But it sort of ties into Barcelona and all the conversations in that. Thank you. Uh, hi. Great film. First time seeing it. Really enjoyed it. My question is really for all of you. In 20 years, a lot of life happens. Um, so I just wanted to see if, in 20 years, um, how you guys have evolved as artists and as people, as a writer and director, or as actors and artists, because um, I think this film is great, and the fact that you got, your careers have gone on to so many different things. I've been really trying to get to back that. to this sort of performance, as a matter of fact. <laughs> I did a film with Alex Ross Perry last year called Golden Exits, and I was like, I'm gonna try and play this kind of as Alice and see if I can capture some of whatever was happening here. I was very shy and frightened of wit on a lot of levels, and also in awe, and maybe had a bit of a crush. And so I was like, it was a lot of mixed emotions, but I've been trying to get back to that, I think that kind of, kind of have this wayward kind of thing in it. and. Um, yeah, I've been trying to get back to that kind of acting somehow. I was, you know, I, I had done three years on a soap opera. And when I got out of the soap opera, I did a television pilot for Aaron Spelling, where I was a boat captain. <laughs> and I wore shorts a lot. Uh, and then... I think I was in a mini-series about an asteroid headed towards Earth. So there, there was a moment uh, somewhere Was it headed on, towards the disco? I was in my little tiny trailer space, but I had um, a little DVD player, and I was watching um, a Klaus Kinski movie, uh, Aguirre, Wrath of God, and, and, and Chloe was walking by on her way to the set, and she said, What are you watching? And I said, uh, it's, this, it's this Werner Herzog. And she goes, oh. And then she kept walking. And I thought, I've, I've either offended Chloe in some way, or uh, she suddenly approves of me in, in another way. But uh, I will say that there's this moment for me, and, it, and it's, a, it's this bifurcation. It's an absolute 
you know, scar, if you will, deep in the slab of, as a young actor, to be in the presence of people who took themselves, their jobs, their art, their creativity and wit at the helm of all of that, taking all of it extremely seriously, and a lot of laughter and a lot of fun included in that, it changed the way I uh, took myself. I, I didn't take myself very seriously, and you might argue that I don't have a resume that would uh, push you in that direction, but it, it has been, uh, as I know that it was the most important thing that happened to me in that period of time in my life. It was just an extraordinary, I became very good friends with Mr. McKenzie. We had uh, a great friendship. And, it, and it, so, you know, if that answers your question at all, looking back at this is a weird time warp. Um, but I have such fantastic memories of it and I'm so proud to have been a part of it. I, I'm, you know, I'm very humbled to just be here with everybody watching it. I'd like to mention something about the, uh, the crew here. Uh, one of the cool things um, done for the film was Mark Suazo, the composer's work, because people think, oh, you're using all this recorded music. But actually Mark was sort of um, combining things. So at the beginning, we have Doctor's Orders, and it's the song playing, and then it's a bridge with score, which Mark wrote and recorded of that melody as score in the film. And then when the girls get into the club, we go back to the song. And then the motto that I really like and, and sort of hold on to is um, our producer, Cecilia Roque. Um, it was such a chaotic production in the sense that we were obliged to start shooting before we had finished casting and finished preparation um, because we had to come out before the Miramax film. And um, it was really tough in the crew. We, you know, we're two weeks in and we're casting Robert Sean Leonard as, as Tom and things like that. And so some crew people were coming up to Cecilia and saying, it's impossible, you know, we don't have enough time and all this. And she said, I think for me the greatest thing, uh, stop complaining and start working. <laughs> because all this thing of sort of complaining about how terrible the situation is and just deal with it do the work. And so thank you, Cecilia, and our editors, Andy and Jay, who are here, who put it all together. Thank you. And thank you, guys. Thank you, guys. I think it's a great note to end this discussion on. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you for sharing this moment. And... I hope you'll come back soon. We don't need to wait another 20 years. We'll, we'll do something else. <laughs> Thanks very much. Thank you. The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Michael Odemark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City, supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, visit filmlink.org, F-I-L-M-L-A-N-C.org. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here.